I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon, or sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom. So I, um, 
have a goddaughter. Some of you actually know her. She's now 12 years old. And she became my goddaughter when she was about four, when she announced to her mother that I was her godmother. <laughs> and her mother said, you know you have to ask. You're supposed to ask. And she said something like, well, you can ask if you want, but she is, you know, so. <laughs> so they asked, and, and of course I was thrilled and, and honored, and I said, wow, I would, I would just love to be your godmother. And um, through the years, we, you know, grew closer and developed a relationship. And then when she was about eight or nine years old, she started sending me emails through her mom. Her, her mother would dictate, her mother would take down the dictation as she would tell her mom what to say. So here was the first email. I've been thinking about things and I wonder if you can help me. Where did the universe come from? Where did space come from? Where did love come from? And do love and space have anything to do with one another? Please tell me everything you know. <laughs> so I said, oh my God, you know, like, what do you do with that? But fortunately, there is a quotation from the Buddha about love and space. And the quotation is quite beautiful when the Buddha said, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. It's like if someone was standing here in the middle of the room throwing paint around in the air, the space isn't going to get ruined. It's also not going to get embellished by the quality of the paint. It's so vast. It's so open, it's so unconfined, unconstrained. Develop a mind so filled with love, it resembles space. So that in the end, if that person was standing here throwing paint around, the space isn't going to care whether it was a very well-chosen color or a really garish mistake. It's free. It's open. So I wrote some version of that to her and said something like, in addition, something like, it's like if somebody at school says something and it really hurts your feelings, sometimes we're, we're with that hurt feeling and it feels like our heart is like as big as the sky. And that hurt, we feel it, it's true, but it's also a little bit like a cloud moving through the sky. And that's different than when we feel like we're a sponge. And that hurt just enters us and it soaks into us and it fills us and we get all kind of like soggy and yucky and completely filled with that hurt. I said, that's the difference, some version of that I wrote to her. And then I didn't hear from her again for a while. And then maybe, um, a month later, her mother wrote to me and said that my goddaughter had gotten into an argument with her little sister. 
And after that, she was going around the house muttering, I am like the sky. I am not a sponge. <laughs> I am like the sky. I am not a sponge. And I've never had any children, so I wasn't too sure about that. But her mother was really happy. She said, she's working it. You know, which I thought was great. So that is an important point. We work it. We work to make it real. Along with a rather radical sense of love, which is like space. It may not be a distinct emotion, although of course we like it when it is. It may not be that gratifying in that emotional way, but it's deep, it's vast. It's open, it's free. Develop a mind so filled with love, it resembles space. So that's our work. So when we practice in some formal kind of way, it's like we're putting ourselves in that place to see what it's like, to see what we're afraid of, to see how we hold back, to see where we're out of balance. And we just keep working it which is absolutely fine. It doesn't mean we're trying to be somebody that we're not. It doesn't mean that we're putting on um, a kind of facade, the nice facade, the sweet facade. But we're opening in, in this very radical fashion. The other side of that is that loving kindness is actually a protection. People often say, well, I don't know if I want to be that open. It's kind of scary. There's way too much suffering out there, but it is its own kind of protection. They actually say, traditionally, the Buddha taught loving kindness as an antidote to fear, as a protection. So just think about what we've been talking about, the self-preoccupation and the fear and the defensiveness and the, um, the assumptions and all those things that just get piling up. No wonder we don't have much of a sense of space. And just to unclutter the heart, to be able to release some of those things gives us a sense of, of that kind of spaciousness. And that's one of the reasons as We've also been talking about a little bit why equanimity is said to infuse the power of loving kindness, because it's wisdom, it's understanding, it's knowing what we can't do, what we're not in control of, knowing that things work in their own way. It doesn't mean we don't try, and certainly we do try, and we try hard, and we put in a lot of effort, and we plant a lot of seeds, but we also know things are not always going to happen according to our timetable. That life has its own unfolding, that the laws of nature are at work, that we can take huge happiness in planting the seeds that we plant, and then we need to let go because there's so much we just don't know. I was talking to somebody um, yesterday, and I was talking about how um, before I went to India for the first time, at the end of 1970, or the fall of 1970, I was still in Buffalo, uh, which is where I was going to college, Buffalo, New York, 
wonder how much it snowed there. <laughs> anyway, um, and Trungpa Rinpoche, who was a Tibetan Lama, came to the United States on his first visit, and he came to Buffalo somehow, and gave a lecture. So I went to the lecture, and it was really just three or four days before I was about to get on a flight and go to Europe, and then go overland to India. And he asked for written questions, so I wrote out the question, I'm about to leave for India to study Buddhist meditation, can you please tell me where to go? And there was just like this big pile of questions in front of him. So he reached out his hand and he pulled it out of the pile. And he was silent for a few moments and then he said, I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. And that was it. I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. It was like no handy monastery guidebook, you know, no directory like, hey, there's a great teacher in this town, you know. It was like, I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. And that's exactly the way it happened. But what I had to stay true to in all of that was my intention, it was my motivation to actually keep going. Because the first place I went to was Dharamsala. I was very interested in Buddhism. I actually wasn't that interested in Buddhism. <laughs> I was interested in Buddhist meditation. I wasn't interested in philosophy or, or uh, theory. I really wanted to know how to use some practical tools to ease my own suffering. And um, that was in the, in the context, in the cradle of Buddhism, as far as I understood. So. I went to Dharamsala because I knew the Dalai Lama lived there and I'd heard he was a Buddhist, right? So I went to Dharamsala to try to find a teacher to teach me how to meditate. And uh, it was just one of those situations that didn't work. It was wonderful, but it didn't quite work. Like I'd go to the, um, there was a, an amazing teacher there. Uh, and I would go to the class only to be told, well, the translators left town for two weeks, so come back in two weeks. So I'd come back in two weeks and only to be told, well, the teacher's gone to the dentist who happens to be the other end of India, you know, so wait another two weeks. And then it just wasn't working. And I um, overheard in a restaurant there that there was going to be an international yoga conference in New Delhi. So I thought, oh, great, I'll go to the conference and I'll find my, my teacher there. And that was like a completely dispiriting experience with the low point of having the yogis and the swamis up on the stage pushing and shoving against each other to be the first to grab the mic and speak. So I thought, wow, this is dismal. You know, I'm going to end up back in Buffalo. <laughs> But uh, this now friend, Dan Goldman, um, who at that point, he'd gone, did he go to India with you, Ramesh? Yeah, and, and Krishnas? Uh, he was a graduate student at the time studying meditation, and uh, he presented a paper at this conference, this yoga conference. So I went, and he mentioned at the end that he was on his way to this town called Bodhgaya, where he was going to do this intensive 10-day meditation retreat, and uh, it was really very pragmatic and direct and not a lot of theory and not a lot of cultural overlay and all of that, and I thought, that's it? 
that's what I need. And sure enough, that was it. So I don't know, like 50 or 100 of us followed Danny from New Delhi to Bodh Gaya, which is where we all met. So it really was like the pretense of accident, but it would have been so easy to give up along the way, except for being able to rest in, in what was really my deepest intention. And knowing might take me a lot of places. I might end up back in Buffalo, who knows? But that's what was really important. And so that's like Suzuki Roshi saying, even if the sun should rise in the West, the Bodhisattva, the being dedicated to enlightenment, only has one way. Whether in the worldly sense we go up or down, we win or lose, things go well, they don't go well, it doesn't matter. We have one way. Which can be expressed in a lot of different forms, but one might say to be coming from a compassionate place, to be coming from an inclusive place, rather than having such a distinct sense of self and other. To coming from a place, to be coming from a place where we have a sense of we, not I and you, winning. You know, me winning, you losing to be coming from a really vast sense of time. Not thinking we have to get this done by tonight, but doing our part and seeing it's out of our hands. You know, years later when, we, when I came back from India and then we started the Insight Meditation Society, um, we received two letters within the first month of being there that were just remarkable for the way that they were addressed. The first, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> and I really liked that one at first. I thought, oh yeah, you know, like, of course, that's how we are. We want things instantly. And if we don't get that instant hit, we think it's worthless. But the second most definitely became my favorite and remains my favorite. And that, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. <laughs> and I thought, how cool is that? That is so right, isn't it? Because there have been so many times, like in my spiritual life, in my meditative life, where I thought nothing was happening, only for me to look back in hindsight and say, oh, look at that, something was happening. And I couldn't tell at the time. Or even that really hurt, but that was opening my heart in some way that stood me in very good stead for the next thing coming down the road. And there have been so many times in my life of, you could say, service, trying to make a difference in this world, trying to make this a better, one, a better world, where it's only been, and only when I am lucky, that in hindsight, I see that that action has borne fruit. At the time, it might have appeared to be nothing more to me than planting a seed, but it had an effect. 
and we don't always see it immediately. We have to remember, and it's not easy to remember, that what we see right in front of us in terms of an immediate reaction, an immediate consequence, may not be the end of the story, that actions ripple out, that we're all interconnected, that life moves, so that we can feel so terribly discouraged unless we remember the Hindsight Meditation Society. You know, there are many times, say, where I've given somebody a book, not necessarily one I've written, but some wonderful book. And they've kind of nodded and thanked me, but it's a little cool. And I think, well, that one didn't make it. You know, but then sometimes years later, and this is what I mean by being lucky, because I get the feedback, you know, someone will come up to me and say, you know, you gave me that book, and in all honestly, honesty, it didn't really mean that much to me. But now, you know, my mother's really sick, or I just lost my job, or, or even I have this amazing opportunity that's just come up in front of me, and I feel kind of squeamish about going for it, and I picked up the book, and it was perfect. Right? So it's like the Hindsight Meditation Society. If we can let go of some of that kind of sense of, I've got to have it all right now. I've got to know I succeeded. I've got to know things went well. If we can relax some of that, we, again, we enter a really, a really big sense of spaciousness, which isn't inertia. It doesn't mean we don't do anything. In fact, we do more, I think. Because it's not also encumbered with oh, man, they didn't thank me for the book. I don't think I'll give any more books. You know? like, I don't think I'll write any more books either because, you know, like, didn't get on the New York Times myself. Like, you know, what's the good? And, you know, we just, like, fill up a lot of space with all that. So what if we had a very different worldview? Like the hindsight meditation site. Let it go. Admit what we don't know. Sometimes the most beautiful actions that we take are only known as such later. And so we have to challenge that sense that this isn't worth doing, that's not worth doing, that's not worth doing, based on just what happens right away. So to have that kind of vast picture is what we call equanimity. To admit what we don't know is good. Because there's a lot of openness and freedom there. Rather than being so judgmental or so discouraged. So we generate something like loving kindness, compassion, because it transforms our motivational field. If we've largely been coming, say, from a place of fear and what we do or what we say and we practice something like loving kindness, the whole basis, the whole kind of intentional and motivational basis for our life shifts. And we find we're coming from a place of connection more and more. We learn certain skills of expression, of communication, of coming together, community, all kinds of things, so that we can take that 
motivation and bring it forth in, in a different kind of way. And we learn to let go so that we're not so insistent on everything happening right away in exactly the form that, that we think it should. That's also space. So these are some of the ways that, that this kind of practice actually becomes, it becomes a part of our life. Remember, the Bodhisattva has only one way. Whether you're standing in an elevator and it's early in the morning, you haven't had any caffeine and someone's trying to talk to you. <laughs> or you're on the airplane going home. Or you see no one has shoveled your walk, actually. <laughs> and you don't have your boots. <laughs> or you get a great prize, like huge, huge, huge delight. And you need to open to that and not dismiss it. Or you're alone, or you're with others. Or you're afraid. Or you feel very connected. The Bodhisattva has only one way. So we know where we want to be in terms of our motivation, in terms of the way we see the world. And, and this is what we actually practice. Okay, so do you have any questions or comments? We have, I'm sure, a microphone somewhere. Yes, there he is. I'm going to miss you. Do you want to come with me wherever I go? Do you want to ask where I'm going first? <laughs> um, thank you, firstly, for your great talks over the weekend. It's been wonderful. Um, my question is about the sponge. I, I love that story, and I think um, I have children. They're a little bit older, though, but I still could use that, so thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And um, I was sitting here thinking how it relates to my life as well, in that um, at the moment, for the past eight years, I've been studying Buddhism, and my life has definitely got better or happier. And I'm definitely more peaceful. The only thing is the sponge is still there and it's still quite murky. So I wondered if you could share um, the sponge is from the past, from the childhood, from the traumas of my upbringing. And um, so, but I find it's also buried in the soil of fear. So when I go to squeeze it, it's buried. So it's hard to mm -hmm. take that. Or not even, it's, it's just not knowing what is happening um, with when that, that sponge and then the fear stops me. So it's, it's that holding and it's not being able to open into the space because of the fear. But it's like it's not like a tap on and switch on and off. It's... Um, that it's there. So I wondered if you could um, talk about these past. Because now I could, I could uh, if someone criticised me, now I could go, OK, it's a cloud and let it go. But it's the old stuff. It's the sponge that's, you know, yeah. 
Thank you. Well, I think that's great. First of all, if if you feel um, or if you see as you see that uh, if someone criticizes you, it's more like the cloud than the sponge. That's tremendous um, because I I think it goes back for me. It goes back to uh, part of what I was saying in terms of beginning again. I think often transformation is like that. And of course, we do tend to long for that great breakthrough experience to happen all at once. Think, finally, I am done with that. Um, but it's more, I think, that the old traumas and the triggers and the uh, patterns arise, but they're kind of porous. They're not so solid because really we're going in and out, in and out, in and out. So. We do have a tendency, say, at the end of an hour to look back and only remember the times we were caught rather than giving credit for the times we were not caught, but they also count. So let's say it's an hour. Within that, there are lots of moments when we're actually free, even though we're in the presence of that old trauma or, or difficult state. It's there, but we're different with it. And then we're caught in it again and overcome, and then we're out. So that's definitely, I sometimes call it the Swiss cheese theory of transformation. It's like we're just poking these little holes. And that's part of what um, leads us to an understanding of transparency. Same stuff is there, but it's not so solid and leaden and um, oppressive and overwhelming. It's really, it's like, oh, look at that. It's like, I don't know if we'll get a rainbow today. I don't know if we'll get rain, but. <laughs> Um, you know, the Buddha used many beautiful images to describe the nature of life. He said life is like an echo, a dream, a rainbow. It's like a drop of dew on a blade of grass, like a flash of lightning in the summer sky. Everything happens, but it's just so transparent, so ephemeral. So that same horrible feeling and... Uh, terrible memory, whatever it might be, it's there, but it's like a rainbow. And genuinely so, you know, not because we're thinking, oh, I've got to think of it this way. Um, but it's every time you move out of it, that's what's happening. And it's just, that's why it's very important not to feel discouraged, because it's always a question of beginning again. You know, we get caught, we move out. We get caught, we move out. And those, those Moments of beginning again are really what it's all about. Uh -huh. um, I've had a daily meditation practice and have fallen in one of the Swiss cheese holes. Um, and find it difficult to be regular again. Uh, I tried beating myself up about it. Surprisingly, that didn't go so well. Mm -hmm. So I wondered if you had any mm -hmm. other thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, because I am the way that I am, I really do believe in daily practice. I mean, when I say I am the way that I am, I, I believe so much in people's uh, capacity to make this stuff real 
and I know how hard it is at the same time, that that's really the hardest thing. Um, so there are a number of things that I think help. Uh, one is I, I think that it's really important to try to have a, a regular practice. That doesn't mean like an hour every day necessarily at all. It could mean two minutes a day. Uh, but it's more the everydayness of it. It's somehow removing ourselves from uh, the kind of momentum of life and actually just dedicating ourselves to awareness and to love, even for a few moments. So I think the everydayness of it is more important than the length of time. Um, it's also very hard. One of my teachers said that the most important moment of your meditation practice is the moment you sit down to do it. In, and I'm, I'm just using sitting, it could be walking, it could be anything. Uh, but it's that period of dedicated practice. Uh, the moment we sit down to do it, we're also saying something about ourselves and believing in ourselves and believing in change and feeling that you know, the things we've been holding don't need to prevail. Um, there's also a moment when we first start where we're not so laden with expectation. It's like, oh yeah, yesterday was this way, so I'd say it'll probably be more so. Or just like, Shh. we just start. So the most important moment during your meditation is the moment you sit down to do it. And people always ask a series of questions like, should I sit alone or should I sit with others? And should I sit in the morning or should I sit in the evening? Or should I sit at the same time every day? And should I sit in the same place every day? And even though different schools will have different responses to that, I always say it depends on what works for you because you've got to make it real. So we can have a nice idea about sitting first thing in the morning and if it never happens, that's a problem. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so what helps you? Um, and then like my friend Joseph Goldstein, he did this resolve once where he said he wasn't going to go to sleep at night until he'd at least gotten into the sitting posture. So that's like a 30-second commitment. And that's good, because, of course, that's the hardest part, is, like, getting there, you know? Once you're, you're beginning, then, then it helps. So that's part of it. I think it's just structure. I like that. You know, okay, you've got a 30-second commitment each day. That's what you're going to do, minimum. And the other part is looking at what might be causing difficulty for you personally. And for me, that was very much, it was often very much about self-judgment. You know, when I would sit to meditate and things felt good and I felt peaceful and it seemed clear, I think, oh, good. This is the same when I was living in India um, in the 70s. <laughs> it's felt good since then, but <laughs> we'll just use that period as an example. Um, when things were like that, I'd think, oh, good. I'm going to live in India for the entire rest of my life, feeling exactly this way. I love meditating. And then when I would sit and I was restless or bored or sleepy or my knee hurt, I would just get up. I would just give up. And I went to this one teacher, this man, Manindra, at one point, and I described that pattern. And he looked at me and he said, for you, I have one piece of advice, and that is just put your body there. He said, every day, just put your body there. Some days it's going to feel one way. Other days it's going to feel another way. Just put your body there. 
And that was really great for me too, because it took me out of that incessant trap of like, how's this? Is it better? Is it worse? What am I doing? I'm just like, just do it. And you can evaluate, you should evaluate, but not like every minute, you know? Like every six months maybe, you know? And is it having an effect in your life is the question, not is it having an effect in your sitting? Um, but do you seem to be getting some tools or some skills in, in the formal practice that are helpful in your life? Just do that. But don't beat yourself up over it. Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste. Namaste.